Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, one of the hosts of the channel, and today we're talking to Martin Summers, a professor of history at Boston College and the author of Madness in the City of Magnificent Intentions, A History of Race and Mental Illness in the Nation's Capital, which was published in 2019 by Oxford University Press. Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Claire. Thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here. I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, sure. Well, as you mentioned, I am a professor of history and African-African diaspora studies uh, at Boston College. I have been in the academy for a little over 20 years, actually probably closer to 25 years now. Uh, I uh, received my PhD at uh, Rutgers University in 1997. And um, I was actually trained as a a cultural historian of the African-American experience, and I had particular interests in uh, gender and sexuality uh, of late 19th and early uh, 20th century. Um, I worked with uh, David Levering Lewis, uh, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, historian. Uh, He's the biographer of W.B. Du Bois as long as well as author of a number of other uh, books on African-American history, and Deborah Gray White, who uh, is probably one of the preeminent historians of uh, African-American women's history. Uh, Her book, um, Aren't I a Woman, uh, about female slaves in uh, the antebellum South, uh, published in 1985, is really one of the classic works. So I was really fortunate to work with uh, both of them uh, they were essentially co-advisors as I uh, worked on my dissertation and um, certainly uh, continued to give me uh, both uh, academic uh, and, and professional advice, or I should say been kind of intellectual sounding boards uh, for me uh, since, my, uh, since my years in graduate school. And how did you come to write Madness in the City of Magnificent Intentions? Because it, uh, in the beginning of the book, the, in the acknowledgments, I think you say this was not the book that you, uh, you set out to write. Uh, 
Right. Yeah, well, I actually pretty much stumbled into uh, the book. Um, as I said, I was really um, interested in gender and sexuality in African-American history around the turn of the 20th century. And so I, uh, my dissertation was on black middle-class masculinity in the early 20th century. And I uh, subsequently revised that and published it as uh, a book in 2004. And I was uh, searching for a second project. Uh, and I, I still wanted to write something about black masculinity, but I decided that I was going to focus on um, African-American men's kind of relationship to the state uh, by really looking at how African-American men in a number of uh, different kinds of institutions uh, experience their masculinity and subsequently attempted to construct a, a gendered sense of self. Uh, and so the, the universe, the, I should say, the institutions that I was interested in looking at were the prison, the military, uh, the school, and the hospital. And I thought that Washington, D.C. would be a real ideal place uh, because of uh, the presence of the U.S. penitentiary, uh, Howard University, which was a, a, a college that was founded after the Civil War to educate free people, uh, Freedmen's Hospital, which again was a hospital founded after the Civil War to uh, to provide care for uh, freed people and subsequently became the teaching hosp hospital for Howard University's medical school. And um, and of course, there's a, a, a significant military presence in, in Washington, D.C. And so in the summer of 2001, I began uh, the research by going to uh, the National Archives, and I began looking at the Freedmen's Bureau records. And I actually grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, and so I was aware of St. Elizabeth's Hospital. Uh, and I noticed that there, uh, that St. Elizabeth's, there was a, a record group uh, of St. Elizabeth's kind of records at, uh, national, at the National Archives. Mm -hmm. So it was towards the end of my research trip uh, I just decided to begin poking around in those records. And the first thing that I looked at was the register book, um, which, as you imagine, was this incredibly large uh, bound volume uh, dating back to 1855. That was the first year that uh, the hospital was open. And um, uh, the spine's deteriorating, the, you know, the corners of the pages are fraying. And I just decided to start, I, I noticed that, they were, the hospital was admitting uh, black patients. And so I just started building a database of patients there. Again, thinking that it was just going to be part of a larger, this larger history about black masculinity in the state. And then uh, I, I came across uh, the entry of one patient who was admitted in 1866. And I talk a little bit about her in the book at the beginning of chapter two. And she was admitted uh, with a diagnosis of mania, and it, there was um, in the register book. There's also a column for the supposed cause, uh, and uh, the the clerk wrote in uh, the column uh, the blackness of her husband, and uh, and I had no idea what that meant, uh, and so, uh, but it really stuck with me, and I left the National Archives that summer and just decided to start reading uh, the, 
scholarship on the history of psychiatry in the United States, and it became very clear to me early on that there weren't any, there weren't very many books that um, or histories that use race as a category of historical analysis. So I just decided that at that point, uh, this was a this was a huge gap in the scholarship, mm-hmm. and uh, I I decided that I would just go ahead and write a history of St. Elizabeth's and um, and its relationship to Washington, D.C.'s African-American community as a way of getting at these larger questions about um, the, uh, the role that ideas about racial difference have played in the development of psychiatry as a, as a profession. Well, the book definitely does that and it does that well i think i mean i think it's it's destined for for classic status um oh there there, there's also one one quick thing too i forgot to mention um there there's actually a real irony here too is that uh i went to rutgers university and i actually took class with gerald grob who was the foremost historian of psychiatry and uh but at the time when i was at graduate school i i had no interest in the history of medicine or the history of psychiatry and so uh, I only later, um, you know, kind of re, uh, restarted our relationship, I guess, after I had begun work on this book uh, and seeing him at conferences. And uh, so it, it's quite interesting that, again, I, I studied with uh, him, but uh, and I would later go on to actually uh, write in a field that he essentially was almost single-handedly responsible right. for, <laughs> for uh for, for developing. That's funny. That is a, that's um, <laughs> quite a coincidence, or I, I don't yeah I don't know what we would call it. Um, I um I'd like to ask you to to talk a little bit about Saint Elizabeth's Hospital. I in the history of psychiatry, I see there, uh, in in my view, there's often a kind of tension in in the books about whether the history of a given institution, asylum, or sanitary, whatever, sanitarium, or whatever, can stand in for the history of psychiatry mm-hmm. its, itself as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so I wondered if you could talk about um, St. Elizabeth's and why um, why it's a significant institution. Yeah. Um, so, well, as I mentioned, it's, um, it's significant for a number of reasons. Uh, one is it's one of the only, or it's one of two, I should say, um, federal asylums in uh, the country uh, for you know the 19th century and much of the 20th century. Actually, it was the only federal asylum uh, in the country in the 19th century, and was joined by the Canton Asylum in South Dakota for "quote unquote" insane Indians uh, in the early part of the 20th century, um, and a- as a result. Uh, it did get actually quite. Uh, uh, there, there was a there was a significant investment of resources in the institution, although you know, like most asylums, it, it suffered from kind of chronic o- overcrowding. Uh, um, but from this, from this, the its very earliest, uh, you know, from from its very founding, I should say, uh, it admitted black patients. Right, uh, the, the initial mandate of the hospital was to uh, house and rehabilitate uh, people who were under federal uh, jurisdiction or in federal custody. And for the most part, that meant sailors and soldiers who had become insane. 
as well as kind of, uh, U.S. residents and territories who didn't have any state uh, citizenship. Um, but because it was situated in the District of Columbia and Washington, D.C. did not have a county uh, asylum, um, again, from its very uh, beginnings, uh, its officials ad admitted a residence, civilian residence of Washington, D.C., those who are too poor to afford uh, private treatment and the significant black population in Washington, D.C. So from, again, its very beginnings, it admitted uh, African-American patients. And uh, and so it's one of the few asylums, in particular, especially in the South, uh, that did so. And even the two other asylums in the South the numbers of black patients didn't um, approach the percentage of black patients as the total population uh, in, 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 in St. Elizabeth's. Uh, and so, so, so St. Elizabeth's always had a, a very you know, uh, racially diverse uh, population. And so, so, so for me, uh, that really provided an opportunity to look at how, again, ideas of racial difference actually uh, shaped the way that psychiatrists thought about uh, insanity, thought about mental health, and then subsequently, you know, uh, uh, treated uh, their black patients. I think the other thing that makes it significant, and again, uh, the, the, the racially diverse uh, population, patient population is, is relevant here, is that there was St. Elizabeth's in many ways was on the cutting edge of uh, psychiatric, the production of psychiatric knowledge, mm -hmm. uh, as well as uh, um, therapeutics, right? So it was the first hospital to, one of the first hospitals to employ hydrotherapy, um, and it did so in, in the late 19th century. Um, its uh, superintendent in the in the first 30 years of the 20th century, William Allenson White was uh, was one of, one of the, the foremost promoters of uh, psychoanalysis in the American psychiatric profession. And he actually introduced psychotherapy uh, into St. Elizabeth's. Uh, the you know, popularizer of uh, the lobotomy, William Freeman, uh, worked mm -hmm. at St. Elizabeth's in the 1930s, although William Allenson White was to the use of lobotomy, and so he didn't. He didn't do. Um, in fact, I don't think that he did any of his uh, uh, lobotomies at St. Elizabeth's. Uh, he began. He really was. You know, he did most of them in private practice or at other, other asylums. Um, and so, so one of the things that I think, and then this gets to the other question about does this actually does St. Elizabeth stand in, or how does it stand in for the history of psychiatry? Uh, as as a whole, you know, I think one of the things that's really interesting about uh, the history of psychiatry is that race has always been a really kind of enigmatic variable <laughs> when psychiatrists mm -hmm. kind of think about, uh, you know, uh, what is mental illness, what is mental health, are there particular groups that are prone or susceptible to mental illness um, to begin with, or particular uh, types of mental illness particular manifestations of mental illness. And so um, a lot of these questions were being worked out. Uh, um, the answers were being sought after in St. Elizabeth's. And it was precisely the, 
the presence of this large black, pop, black patient population that allowed them to kind of do some of this, some of this work. Uh, although at the end of the day, you know, they uh, they were no uh, uh, closer to kind of finding uh, or being able to explain actually what role race or racial difference played in uh, the etiology uh, or the manifestation of uh, mental illness. Well, let's talk a little bit about St. Elizabeth's roots. Um, so it, it, it's founding and it's operation in the era of, of what's often called moral treatment. Um, you, um, you detail how, how this, this founding is, re- is related essentially to kind of a racist medical science um, and the production of, of knowledge, you know, psych- psychiatric research and knowledge. Could you tell us a little bit about what St. Elizabeth's looked like, to, looked like when it was founded? Um, why would patients seek admission there? Why would Black patients seek admission there? Um, and then what kind of research was being produced? Yeah, so uh, so it was founded in, in the mid-19th century, so 1855 was the uh, year that it opened. And uh, it was actually only, that's actually only 11 years after the uh, founding of the uh, Association for uh, the, I can never remember, AMSI, the, the, the first kind of psychiatric, psychiatric uh, profession, which was uh, founded in 1844. And um, the, the principal therapeutic regime at that time was moral treatment, right? And so the idea was that uh, the best way to cure um, the, the mentally ill or was to remove them from the source of their psychical distress and uh, place them in a very tranquil kind of idyllic uh, environment where you could really regulate their behavior, make sure they got enough sleep, they had a nutritious diet, um, they uh, weren't idle, so they, they you know, they were they were employed uh, in, in in certain uh, in certain ways, and um, and so. And, and that they also be situated, that the asylum be situated in a very healthy uh, environment. Um, and so, you know, one that was, you know, uh, not exposed to, uh, you know, uh, fevers, right? So, there, mm-hmm. and so in Washington, D.C., for instance, it's a, a very, uh, especially in the 19th century, low-lying uh, areas, Um a very malarial environment. So it was really important to uh, situate the, the hospital uh, at a higher elevation. Um, and, and so, so, so the ho- so the hospital's officials uh, were very uh, particular about citing the, 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 the location or citing the institution. And they wanted to make sure that it was in an environment where uh, white patients, or I should say white, uh, local white residents uh, were not very uh, sick. We're not, you know, that there wasn't a high incidence of uh, fever or malaria. And, and, and you see actually this being articulated uh, very uh, overtly in much of the correspondence uh, between the officials. And then, you know, they also had to deal, they also had to um, deal with this question of, well, you know, how are you going to, um, how are you going to house uh, this, uh, 
uh, again, racially diverse mm -hmm. uh, patient population. And so um, they basically created separate lodges for the quote unquote colored patients uh, that were somewhat removed from the center building. And uh, the way that they the way that they justified this was essentially by making the argument that it would be very stressful for white patients to occupy the same uh, uh, dorms or, or I should say uh, wards as uh, black patients. And so the proximity to black patients uh, would impede uh, white patients' recovery. And, and so, so this kind of uh, logic of, of racial difference, mm -hmm. um, essentially a kind of also a racist justification of segregation was very much built into uh, the therapeutic logic um, uh, that characterized the hospital. Um, to your question, why would black patients want to have been admitted? So this is a really interesting one because St. Elizabeth's actually did not, uh, I'm sorry, I should say Washington, D.C. did not have a voluntary admissions law until 1948. They were actually quite late. Uh, mm. uh, states had begun uh, passing voluntary admissions laws in the early 20th century, the 19-teens, um, first decade of, of the 20th century and the 19-teens, but it wasn't until 1948 that Washington, D.C. Uh, passed a, a, a voluntary admissions law. And so most of the patients did not seek to be admitted, right? They were, they were admitted by either uh, their uh, family members, right, uh, or by uh, the uh, uh, local officials, right? The, the metropolitan police, uh, for instance. And, and, and then they had to go through a very, um, a, 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 a very kind of a bureaucratic process to be admitted, right? You had to have two, uh, uh physicians test, uh, testify that they were in fact insane. You had to have two, uh, DC residents testify that uh, the individual was incapable of self-support uh, before they were actually admitted to uh, the hospital. Now, again, there there were some, and, and I write about this in, in the book um, quite extensively, there were uh, many uh, Black Washingtonians who uh, did feel like St. Elizabeth's was, a, um, was an institution that they could turn to uh, to actually uh, deal with uh, the problem uh, that a mentally ill uh, member of the family posed, and so, um, and so, so, so it was not unusual for for uh, Black Washingtonians uh, to try to get their um, loved ones admitted to the hospital, and then to also, you know. Uh, continue to try to manage their therapeutic experience once they were, were in the hospital. And there are actually uh, a, a handful of occasions, I, well, uh, the instances I, I found where um, some black patients who were already in St. Elizabeth's sought to stay, even though uh, the officials thought that they had recovered enough to be uh, discharged. And uh, you know, 
some of the reasons that they wanted to stay was because they, their um, life outside of the institution was very precarious for them, right? They, they may not have had any economic opportunities, viable economic opportunities. So the fact that uh, they actually worked in the hospital, not for any money, but that they worked in the hospital was, was one reason that they may have stayed or that they actually got medical care uh, not for their uh, mental illness, but for, you know, their uh, bodily infirmities or, uh, you know, so, so these are some of the reasons that some patients may have wanted to stay is because staying inside, having, you know, uh, regular, getting regular meals was better than the uncertainty of the unknown outside of the hospital. And what was the treatment at the time? What was moral treatment for black patients and for white patients? So, um, again, it's just make, making sure that they were in um, a, a fairly uh, peaceful uh, environment and uh, making sure that they got plenty of sleep, uh, a nutritious diet. Um, also, when it came to, uh, there, there needed to also be a fairly, uh, a good balance, I should say, between labor and leisure. And so... Um, but but labor meant different things for black patients and white mm-hmm. patients, right? So mm-hmm. uh, so for black patients, labor uh, meant working in uh, menial jobs that kept the hospital functioning. So black women uh, worked primarily in the hospital's laundries. Uh, black men worked uh, primarily at kind of clearing uh, the fields um, uh, as as being essentially the uh, the unskilled labor on in the major kind of infra- infrastructural projects on the hospital's uh, campus or working in uh, the kitchen, uh, and so, uh, and these were these were uh, forms of employment that would characterize black patient life throughout uh, the first half of the 20th century as well. And again, it was framed as. Uh, labor, right? So I'm sorry, mm-hmm. therapy that, that mm-hmm. essentially, uh, which you, which you, from from the hospital officials' perspective, what you're doing is also you're you're resocializing um, these mentally ill individuals uh, so that once they are in fact released, they will be able to enter into those kinds of social roles that they occupied before uh, coming into the hospital. But in some ways, that also very much uh, ignored the existence of class difference uh, amongst uh, black Washingtonians because not every uh, black Washingtonian who was admitted to St. Elizabeth's was say working class. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and so, and then on the flip side of that, uh, white uh, patients, well, white male patients essentially uh, engaged in farm labor, which was actually seen as something that was much, uh, it, it was much, it was a much more desirable uh, um, uh, a job on uh, at St. Elizabeth's uh, than say again, working clearing fields or uh, excavating uh, ditches and, and things of that nature. And then uh, the female patients, um, they're, they, I hesitate to call it a form of employment, but the activities that uh, they did were things like uh, needlework. Uh, and, and so these kinds of uh, activities that might be associated more with uh, the, the tasks or the duties of 
uh, middle-class homemakers. I think therapeutic labor is the term that you yes. use. Is, mm -hmm. that, is that the term that, that, that the, um, the, the therapists used at the time? No, that, well, that was my, that's, that's my, uh, yeah, but, but they definitely, well, they definitely use the term labor, um, and, and, and for, and they framed labor as a form of therapy. Absolutely. Um, I, I'd like to talk about the types of research that, mm. that, um, were, were, were being produced. So, um, So, so the research initially um, that was being produced, um, I'm trying to think of a way of a way to phrase it, um, sort of um, put forward the theory that black and white psyches were kind of fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. Is that, it, it, can, can you tell us a little bit about that research? Yeah. Um, what were some of the assumptions that it made and what were some of the, the findings that were reported? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so this idea that uh, the black and white psyche were fundamentally different, I think really goes back to the mid 19th century before you had even any kind of comparative psychology research going on at uh, the hospital. I don't, they, they weren't really pursuing uh, psychology, I'm sorry, research in this area until the 20th century, but it, but but the the questions that they were uh, seeking to answer through this research had existed uh, much earlier, right? Again, um, uh, it, it wasn't even a question of whether or not uh, the black and white psyches were different. It was just how were they different, right? What explains their difference? Uh, that, so there was an a priori assumption that the black and white psyches uh, were were in fact different. And, um, and you, you certainly see that in the ways that uh, these physicians in the mid 19th uh, and up through the uh, late 19th century were, were talking about uh, black insanity, right? For, I mean, going back to this, this fundamental question, was it possible for black people to become insane to begin with? And if so, then what did that insanity look like and how did it differ from uh, white insanity? So one of the, the, one of the psychiatric or one psychiatric consensus in the late 19th century was that black people were, or, uh, were more prone to mania uh, then they were melancholia, where it was white patients were, or the white insane were more prone to melancholia than, uh, than mania. And, um, and so, uh, so by the time you get to the, the early 20th century, uh, and, you know, so they're operating from the assumption, uh, that in fact, black and white, uh, the black and white psyche are fundamentally different. And uh, again, the, the, the main question uh, was, well, what explains that difference? And, and then as an ancillary uh, question uh, to, to that was, um, can, we, can we think about, well, there were two ancillary questions. Uh, is, is there a way that we can look at, take kind of the, the, the black psyche um, and, uh, and particularly the black um, the damaged psyche, and do, will that give us any insight into how to uh, approach uh, the um, 
the damaged white psyche, right? Uh, and so, and and um, and and so that was that was one. But then also, I think connect. I shouldn't say connected to that. Another question here also um, was, well, it, it, is there anything in um, in our knowledge about the black uh, psyche that will actually help us? You know, um, if not cure, certainly care for the black mentally ill, right? So, so this is one of the, and this is one of the things that I um, I try to do with the book, is um, just not acknowledge that there were um, kind of uh, racist or racialist dimensions, right, to mm-hmm. the uh, the the psychiatric knowledge that was produced uh, that. You know the, the impulse um, to pursue this comparative psychology uh, research was, in some ways, animated by uh, a fundamental belief in black difference and also black inferiority. But at the same time, these uh, psychiatrists also uh, did not completely abandon uh, this mission of also caring for. Uh, mentally ill blacks, and so really kind of thinking about how these two uh, really kind of coexisted in this uh, in this space and the effects that it had on uh, black patients. So, uh, so, so to get back to the questions, what kind of what were, what were they finding? Uh, well, this is the thing. I mean, in, in many ways, it, they were just rehashing many of these uh, uh, earlier kind of nineteenth century ideas about the differences between uh, the black and white psyche, right? Kind of um, mm-hmm. uh, black, blacks are, uh, are more prone to, um, to experiencing mania or, and even after say the, um, this tripartite division of insanity between mania, melancholy and dementia had been displaced by the introduction of the, um, the, the diagnostic concepts of uh, dementia precox or later schizophrenia and manic depressive disorder. Um, the, the, the ways that the uh, black mental illness in the late 19th century, they were just essentially mapped onto these new, uh, the, these new diagnostic, diagnostic concepts. So even as, for instance, psychiatrists recognized that uh, blacks were blacks did suffer from manic depressive disorder, which had mm-hmm. been assumed to be a predominantly white form of mental illness. They still made they still argued that well, but yes, even though uh, they are they do they do suffer from manic depressive uh, disorder, they're uh, more apt to be uh, to uh, stay in the manic phase than they are in the depressive phase. And again, that's just a, a, a um, it's it's the it's the old. Uh, uh, 19th century uh, psychiatric, con- uh, it's a retread of the old mm-hmm. uh, 19th century psychiatric uh, consensus. And then I, the, the last thing I'll say um, about this too is that it, what's really interesting is on more than one occasion, you even see the psychiatrists in these articles that they're writing. And 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 this is another thing that's significant about St. Elizabeth's. It, it is in fact, uh, most of the uh, scholarship on comparative psychology research came out of St. Elizabeth's in the 1920s and the 1930s. 
Um, and, and so, um, and, and uh, in, in some instances, these uh, psychiatrists who were doing this research, they even acknowledge in the article itself that they have not been able to locate any, um, any uh, evidence that mm -hmm. uh, blacks and whites respond to external uh, stimuli any differently, uh, let alone be able to explain <laughs> why they do so, right? They're not even able to observe that, uh, that this, this supposed um, uh, distinction. So the results don't really even match the theory. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, how does the rise of dynamic psychiatry change the way mental illness is conceived and treated? Mm. Yeah, so... Uh, so by the time you get to uh, again the, er the early 20th century, uh, you know the, you have the shift in uh, the, the paradigm from neurology to uh, dynamic uh, psychiatry, right? Uh, neuro neurology mm -hmm. basically uh, arguing that there's a somatic basis to uh, mental illness, um, and uh, and it's also uh, hereditary, or in many cases, it's hereditary to. Um, dynamic psychiatry's uh, argument or the framing of a mental illness as a result of uh, maladaptation, right? So uh, um, in order to uh, lead a, a, a mentally healthy lifestyle or, or uh, a mentally healthy lifestyle is, equates to kind of um, the social adjustment, right? Kind of mm -hmm. appropriate social adjustment. Uh, and then there are those who aren't able to adjust, and so they become maladapted, and that might be the result of kind of psychosexual conflict or uh, interpersonal uh, relationships. And um, and so one one expression uh, of of dynamic psychiatry is not the sole expression uh, of dynamic psychiatry, but one is psychoanalysis, or I should mm -hmm. say, one form of dynamic psychiatry is psychoanalysis. And many psychoanalysts believe that psychosis was the result of an individual's regression to their race's ancestral past or a more primitive stage of the race's development. Um, but in the early 20th century, you know, uh, African-Americans were still thought to be uh, primitive, right? A much more mm -hmm. primitive uh, than, than whites. And so since African-Americans were presumed to be more primitive to begin with, uh, psychiatrists were still confronted with this question of whether a black person exhibiting symptoms of psychosis was actually psychotic, right? Or were they just uh, exhibiting the kind of normal characteristics of their of their primitive uh, culture? Mm -hmm. And so, so, so again, this race is an enigmatic enigmatic variable, uh, still very much shaped the way that. Uh, dynamic psychiatrists were thinking about um, about mental illness, and uh, and and then the way that played itself out in terms of um, in terms of uh, thera uh, uh, therapeutics. So, what I was able to um, kind of establish and argue through the um, looking at these case files. Uh, well, first of all, I should also say that Saint Elizabeth was a really large. Uh, uh, institution, and so the, 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 the patients, the number of patients who uh, 
actually re received psychotherapy were, were fairly small, but there were some black patients who did receive psychotherapy. And of course there were white patients who received psychotherapy. One of the things that I um, uh, argued after looking at these case files uh, was that for, from the psychiatrist perspective, um, they weren't so much interested in really, uh, when, when they engaged uh, in uh, psychotherapy with black patients, they weren't so much interested at getting at the root of, of their psychological problems, right? Kind of really mm -hmm. kind of uh, delving into uh, the, the black patients' complexes um, in, in the same way that they were with, with white patients. And, and you see also this, uh, you see the, this in the way that the, the psychiatrists talk about, not so much in their exchanges with black patients, but in the articles they write about. Uh, um, and, and so there's this discourse about the, the quote unquote inaccessibility of the black psyche. Uh, and, and some of this is again, shaped by ideas about a fundamental uh, racial difference, right? Um, that, uh, you know, that um, the experiences of black people are so fundamentally different from whites that it's really, it's, it's really impossible to fully understand um, the black interiority. And then also that blacks are naturally duplicitous, right? Um, and, and so, uh, so there, that, that kind of inaccessibility is compounded by uh, the uh, kind of Blacks kind of naturally deceptive um, uh, um, uh, uh, temperaments or demeanors, and so, so, so in that sense, um, for for what what I what I argue in the book is that psychotherapy was aimed not so much at curing right um, uh, black patients, but just really dealing with their, the, the, that's the surface uh, problems, uh, really kind of getting them to the point uh, where they might be well enough to uh, do work in, in, in the hospital, right? Go to the laundry, uh, go to the kitchen. Um, and, they, and then there's also a, the continued use of other uh, forms of therapy, um, kind of somatic-based therapies such as hydrotherapy uh, and uh, mechanical, the quote-unquote mechanical restraints. Right, labor again was um, was something that uh, still formed a very uh, significant uh, part of the therapeutic uh, paradigm for uh, black patients. What um, was really even after? Uh, sorry, yeah. Uh. What was really striking to me reading the book was how you have this paradigm shift, right, from moral treatment to more dynamic psychiatry. And these are supposed to be two, you know, two very different paradigms, ways of thinking about, you know, mm -hmm. mind and, and mental health. Um, and they, but they were equally racist, um, <laughs> you know, right, and, right. Um, and, and then the way that they, that, that, that um, therapy was actually carried out on, mm -hmm. on a, with patients on a day-to-day -day basis um, didn't necessarily change that much with the, the, the grand paradigm shift either. 
No, yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, and uh, uh, and I don't I actually don't think I say that. So that's, that's, <laughs> I'm glad that you that you saw that uh, because that's the, you know that's the other thing too is that you, you continue to see the 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 resurfacing of these older ideas that go back to the 19th century. So again, even after the turn to uh, psychiatric universalism after World War II, right, uh, where psychiatrists essentially abandon the idea that there is, in fact, um, these fun- this fundamental difference between the black and, and the white psyche, they're still talking about uh, black mental illness as being fundamentally different from white mental illness, right? So so you have this uh, this turn towards um, explaining why uh, um, African Americans are disproportionately susceptible or prone to schizophrenia, which is again, it's just a, a, um, a, a retread of blacks are more prone to mania, right? Especially after schizophrenia becomes associated with aggressiveness um, and, uh, and and criminality, and then also um, the. In, in the 1950s, uh, you in, in the 1960s, you also have psychiatrists beginning to again explain uh, the uh, surge in rates of mental illness among African Americans as a result of their uh, becoming uh, equal, right? Uh, mm-hmm. As a result of the civil rights movement, and they can't quite handle integration and competing with whites on. Uh, an equal playing field, and that is a reverberation of the that that um, the, the discourse of uh, freedom, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Causing uh, insanity uh, or elevated rates of insanity among uh, African Americans in the 1880s and the 1890s. So um, I, we're we're running out of time, and I, and I, I still have a couple more questions. I want to oh, make yeah. sure that we get to before we do our traditional final question. Um, what to, to kind of quickly um, bring us uh, through the end of the book and up to the present? What um, you you touched on a little bit? What what happens to this um, story after World War Two? And then what is the status of of Saint Elizabeth's mm-hmm. today? You can just yeah. bring us up to speed to the present. Sure. So um, Saint after World War Two is very interesting. Um, as I mentioned earlier, St. Elizabeth's main mission was to house and rehabilitate soldiers and sailors. Uh, and so after World War II, basically the military uh, stopped sending um, its uh, you know, mentally ill service members to St. Elizabeth's. And, and that's largely for two reasons. Um, one was St. Elizabeth's, like uh, many uh, uh, large uh, public hospitals around uh, the country, uh, we're starting to be seen as snake pits, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just uh, these these faci- these large facilities, kind of warehousing uh, mentally ill people and not providing any treatment. And then uh, the the other uh, factor that contributed to that was that the VA system begins uh, building uh, psychiatric hospitals, and so that so so these uh, soldiers and sailors are kind of redirected there and. And what ends up happening is that the demographics of the hospital shift dramatically uh, so that um, it basically becomes a civilian hospital. And because it's located in Washington, D.C., which uh, by the uh, 1960s is a majority black city, 
the hospital uh, uh, really becomes, you know, the, the, the patient population becomes primarily African-American, um, also uh, uh, geriatric patients suffering from chronic mental illnesses. And it really becomes associated again with uh, kind of the worst elements of uh, the pu- a public uh, mental hospital or a state mental hospital. Um, it actually loses accreditation in the early 1970s before it, 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 it reacquires it in, in the mid um, in the mid 1970s. And again, like other uh, state mental institutions, it uh, eventually went through a process of deinstitutionalization uh, so that now, um, it is primarily a, uh, a an outpatient. You know, it it it, it, um, it serves an outpatient population, um, and uh, I think that something like ninety nine percent of the patients. Uh, I probably shouldn't use that that specific. Uh, a, a very large, well, many a very, of them. Many yes, of them. Yes. A very large percentage of <laughs> patients at, at St. Elizabeth's are forensic patients. Mm-hmm. So they're either there uh, because they've been um, they've been um, uh, found not guilty by reason of insanity, or they're awaiting psychiatric evaluation before they go uh, to court. Uh, and so, but having said that too, it's also, um, what's really interesting to, uh, St. Elizabeth's is it's going through a bit of a renaissance as well. Um, it has a new state of the art hospital, uh, and much of the campus is, um, it's in Southeast, uh, DC, which is in, in one of the poorer communities in the district of Columbia. And so, uh, there's a lot of development that's going on. Actually, the Department of Homeland Security has moved in and oh. has taken over the original part of the campus uh, oh. with, this, with, the, with the center building. Uh, and uh, so, and, and I, I think the hope is that, uh, that the presence of DHS will generate ancillary businesses and will be economically beneficial for uh, Anacostia, which is the, the, the neighborhood that surrounds um, uh, surrounds uh, uh, St. Elizabeth's. So back to your original research question, this history of this of this community and the, and the state um, continues. Mm-hmm, <laughs> okay. mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, right. Um, I, I, I've got one more question before our traditional final question. And um, I asked if I could quote from the end of the book because mm-hmm. it is just, um, it's so beautifully written and you said I could. So, um, at, at the end of the book, uh, addresses the magnificent intentions in the book's title. And you write at times these, and, and in particular, um, the, the intentions in regard to, um, the misguided and, and often racist ideals of the institution's medical providers, but also the intentions refer to the intentions and the expectations of black sufferers and their mm. families. Mm-hmm. And you write, at times these intentions were in accord with those as, of, of black sufferers and their families who ran the institution. At others, they were in conflict. In the end, the history of race and mental illness is the story of the distance between expectations and limitations between medical altruism and racism, between medical objectification and sufferer's agency, between the aspirational and the real. 
Um, what lessons might the history of St. Elizabeth's have um, for, for those of us working on advancing racial equity and justice in academic medicine today? Mm. Yeah, so um, th- thank you for, for reading that, uh, that quote. I, um, so I think, I think two things and from two different perspectives. So one from of, uh, you know, health professionals, uh, those people who are in a position uh, to providing care for uh, sufferers who, as you know, are, um, are at their most vulnerable when they're in uh, these kinds of relationships with, mm-hmm. um, with clinicians. And, and I think, and this is, again, something that runs through the book, um, which I've really tried to, to highlight. I, I, I didn't want to write a book that basically said that, you know, psych- psychiatry is a racist project and, and right. it's always <laughs> been. I, 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 don't, I don't believe that because I, I do believe that um, psychiatrists or physicians in general go into their line of work with a desire to heal. Um, but often that desire to heal is really compromised by a belief in racial difference um, and, and the inferiority of, of black people. And, and, and sometimes that belief is, is unconscious. Often it is unconscious. Um, but, and, but, but how, you know, again, this desire to heal and this belief in racial difference is, can coexist. They do coexist. Um, and they shape the ways that, that, uh, uh, that, that healthcare is delivered in this country. And so I, I would hope that, you know, this is something that we need to constantly be, um, you know, be, be attentive to uh, and be, be on guard uh, against. And then from the other, the other perspective um, about, black, uh, about black people's relationship to psychiatry and, and the medical profession more generally, I think we have this, this narrative that there is this fundamental mistrust, that blacks have this fundamental mistrust of, um, of the medical profession and uh, of psychiatry. And, and I think that's true to a certain extent, but I also think that it's much more complicated than that. Uh, I, I don't think that blacks only exist in a, uh, an apathetic or, or antagonistic relationship to, uh, to the medical profession. Uh, in fact, I think that they have always sought to engage uh, the medical profession uh, to make sure that they are getting the care that they deserve, the same care as as whites do. And so, um, and and so, I think that it's it's worth keeping that uh, in in mind as well. And it's really it was really reinforced uh, in you know during the during the pandemic is that we we. You know, we we bought into this idea, um, un, uncritically, that black people were vaccine hesitant, and that's true to a certain extent. But that, but but at the same time, you know, um, blacks, it, the, the people would just say, "Well, you just go and you 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 ask, you answer questions that black people right. have, right? <laughs> or or you also make sure that there are ways that they can access uh, the." The vaccine is—it's it's often as much about access as it is about attitudes, and, and or and and so, so so we have to, I think, on, on both sides we have to um, have much more kind of, uh, complicated um, uh, narratives about uh, the relationship between 
the uh, physicians, the medical profession, psychiatrists, and, and people of color in this country. Well, Martin, this, the book is a, a wonderful example of how to do that and how to tell those complicated stories. And um, I'm, I'm sure that there will be um, many, many similar books to follow by other scholars. But um, I've also gotten to our traditional final question, <laughs> which is where I'm supposed to ask, um, what is next? What's next for you? What are you working on now? Well, I've absolutely fallen in love with the history of medicine, so I'm continuing this work. Uh, and it's something that was really, uh, it was an interest that was sparked by um, as I was finishing up the St. Elizabeth's book and I was writing the last chapter on deinstitutionalization uh, and community mental health care. And so I'm uh, basically uh, working on a project now that looks at how uh, medical experts and government officials and community grassroots organizations in the second half of the 20th century uh, thought about the relationship between urbanization and mental illness and uh, kind of sometimes collaborated with one another and at other times kind of um, uh, battled with one another over developing uh, mental health care policies that would address the needs of low-income African-Americans in urban areas. And so um, it's called Inner City Blues, tentatively now as Inner City Blues, um, African-American Mental Health and Social Policy in 20th Century Urban America. And right now it looks at Washington, D.C., Boston, and, and Chicago. Well, that sounds like a wonderful project. And um, I just selfishly, I hope it doesn't take 20 years. Because <laughs> I want to read it right away. <laughs> me too. Me too. Thank you, Claire. <laughs> <That's>, thank, you. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your work with us today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I, I, had, a, I had a wonderful time.